Welcome to Encouraging Change, a podcast that explores the relationship between motivational interviewing and peer recovery support. Your hosts, Laura Saunders and Chris Kelly, will engage in a conversation that combines their professions and passions, the spirit of motivational interviewing, and the power of peer support. Laura is a Wisconsin State Project Manager for the Great Lakes ATTC, MHTTC, and PTTC, and a seasoned motivational interviewing trainer. Chris is a project manager for the Peer Recovery Center of Excellence and an expert on peer recovery support services. So thank you for joining us today and enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 11 of Encouraging Change Using Motivational Interviewing and Peer Support. Today's episode, we're talking about developing effective relationships and partnerships. And specifically, we're going to be talking about those partnerships within family systems. And so we are very, very lucky to have my friend and mentor and guide, Pam Lanhart, here with us today. And she is the founder and director of Thrive Family Support. So when we, so when this topic came up, the very first person I thought of was Pam, because she does such an excellent job, not only using motivational interviewing within her own family system, but now she teaches other family members um, from really across the nation on how to integrate motivational interviewing into their conversations when they have a loved one who is struggling with substance use challenges. So there was no doubt in my mind, I knew the person that I wanted to come on and join today's podcast. And so with that, I just want to give Pam an opportunity to introduce herself and just tell us a little bit about Thrive Family Support, and then we'll jump into how this relates back to motivational interviewing. So you can take it away, Pam. Well, thanks, Chris. So I identify as a person in long-term recovery from the effects of the disease of addiction. And my background is just that I grew up with parents that suffered from substance use disorder. I had siblings that suffered and I have a son who is in recovery right now. But long before he activated his recovery, we started doing a lot of work in our own family to try to walk through this a little bit differently. And I remember when he was young and Uh, We were trying to figure out how to do this um, family thing with him, feeling dysregulated and like I was violating my values a lot because I didn't have the ability to really communicate effectively with him. I just didn't know what I didn't know. But about six years ago, I went through the peer recovery specialist training in Minnesota, by the way, which Chris was leading at the time. And light bulbs just started going off, especially when we went through the motivational interviewing section. And there was so much of that that I knew I could take back and apply to my life and to the way I interacted, not just with my son, but really with anyone in my life, because there were so many things that just applied to communication skills in general. And and as a result of that, Um, When I started Thrive, I developed a curriculum that in large part is informed by motivational interviewing, because I just think it's something that when you look at the spirit of MI, and then you look at the 
tools for active listening and for communicating effectively, every single piece of it is imperative, in my opinion, for families to learn how to engage with their loved one when things are hard in their family. So something you said earlier that really hit me was that, you know, families are first responders. It's often, it's the family members who seek support before the person who's experiencing the substance use challenges. And so from your lens and from your personal experience, how did motivate, how does motivational interviewing play into that? And how do you use motivational interviewing and teach those skills to the people who come to you asking for support? Well, I think, um, you know, we have to first acknowledge that when we discover that a loved one is using substances, it's traumatic and it's dysregulating. And in most cases, there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of chaos and we want it to stop. (laughs) You know, we just like everything in me was like, you need to stop using substances. So of course, right away, we adopt this language that's telling and shaming. You need to, you have to, you must. Um, There's nothing collaborative about it, or at least in my family, there wasn't. And this is my experience with most families is that it's, it's not collaborative. And we are trained and conditioned in our country to war on drugs, right? So we, we're told that, that we have to be uh, in conflict with this. So when you think about the spirit of MI and the fact that, you know, one of the fundamental things about uh, MI is acceptance, first of all, you know, and just getting a family to the place where they can be non-judgmental and they can um, use empathy. And then, of course, that idea of partnership, that was a big thing. Everything about uh, wanting a person to stop is very confrontational. And we're told that they're in denial. And I put my little fingers up in quotes, right? So if my person is in denial, then I need to get them out of denial, which becomes very confrontational in most cases, right? And then of course, you know, we think that they don't have any They shouldn't have any agency in their decisions or they're not capable of self-efficacy, which is another one of those fundamental spirits of MI, right? Is that I know innately that you do have the capability because I know what you're like as a human being. And so for me as a family member, and when I work with families, it goes back to intrinsic value right? How do I honor a person even when they're doing, you know, things that maybe I don't agree with and how do I treat them as a human being rather than as their diagnosis or their disease, right? Yeah. Seeing that person with that absolute worth lens, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, I, I love you and I'm here to help. Right. And the people, it sounds like, who seek your help, Pam, are willing to say, I know that my natural tendencies are to war on drugs, are to tell you what to do, or to save you from yourself. And yet there's a little inkling, like, you know, and I know that isn't going to work. 
that isn't going to work. I've tried that or that, you know, that, that never really works all that well, does it? And so if I come over to Pam and I say, could you coach me through this? Is there a better way? And so, you know, that those families are, are really being open to, to a different way. We'd like to hope that at some point we live in a world where all families are open to this and this becomes the norm, right? Instead of something that we have to, you know, sort of sell to a family. Yeah. Because oftentimes they just feel like, oh, there's no way I could ever communicate effectively with my loved one um, when they are in active use. And it does, you know, it does go a little bit against the messaging in society, which tends to be, you know, to disconnect and detach and let them hit this some sort of mythical bottom and the truth is like you have to engage with the person if you're going to use these motivational interviewing skills and just I I always say when we tell someone what to do we activate their natural rebellion so when we fall into those natural patterns of conflict and confrontation what we're actually doing is driving them farther away from the connectedness and the relationship that brings about change. So for families, that conversation looks like, I know you love your person and I know that you want to influence them towards change. And if you plan to do that effectively, you're gonna have to maybe learn how to change some of your language and change your way of being with them so that we can facilitate safety, right? Uh, healing doesn't happen unless they feel safe. And MI definitely makes a person feel very safe in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those, those relational aspects of I'm gonna treat you like a partner, I accept you, I'm gonna not judge you, I'm gonna look for your strengths. I'm gonna look for your strengths, I, I, no matter who you are and what you've done. Yeah, back to that again. And the beauty is that with most family members, they know those strengths really well, right? They know that person, they've lived with that person for years, they knew them maybe before their substance use was activated. And so, you know, so oftentimes we just have to remind families, like, just remind yourself of who they are, and, and then just speak that over your person, even when it's um, their behaviors aren't matching necessarily what that was, right? Yeah. So, and respecting that they do still know themselves better than you know them, mm-hmm. even though they are your son, daughter, partner, et cetera, et cetera. You, they know themselves better than you do, even though you know a lot about them. And, and that respect of that partnership allows their ideas about how and why they might want to consider recovery then become the most important ideas in the conversation. Mm-hmm. It can be their guide, but their ideas are really the best mm-hmm. ideas because they know themselves better than we do. Right. And so often they've lost that you know, they've lost that empowerment, right? So part of motivational interviewing is that piece of, I'm gonna use language and open-ended questions to probe and to empower. And I think that um, in the family system, you know, where there's a there's an, another E word, right? That's used a lot, which is 
um, that we don't want to enable our loved one. And I don't use that word unless I use it in the context of I'm going to enable them to live. <laughs> and yeah. then let's use another E word, which is how can we empower them to figure things out, you know, to determine what feels best for them. Well, and the other E word that puts us in a space to to even consider that is to be to be evocative or to be genuinely curious, right? Like I I can only make assumptions about what might be your dials and levers of change. And I might think I know them because you're my family member and I of course know that you know you want to recover because of X, Y, and Z. And that may not be correct at all. That people have their own stuff, their own reasons. They have their own reasons for having things end up the way they are now and their own reasons to move in the direction of change. And actually, well, and you, you were touching a little bit about on that, Pam, the, the change talk stuff and, and yeah. helping people not move towards change versus get defensive and then have just build up a whole storehouse of reasons why they don't want to change because you put them in this defensive position. And all that does is it causes people to just stack up a whole big pile of status quo or sustained talk, stuck talk. Well, and you know, we have to think about in that idea of ev evocation, um, it's a whole different thing when it's a therapist patient relationship versus family because there's this whole other level of pain that and trauma that has taken place and so you know helping the family to understand you know what happens with someone who's using substances and and why they behave the way they do and and so there's this like really big piece of this which is um I can't evoke, I can't use uh, these questions to, and be curious unless I really get to that place of radical acceptance, right? Mm -hmm. So like, this is, this is what it is and we're here and I'm not gonna take this personally, right? This yeah. is about me um, and, and yes, I know there's trauma and pain and I'm gonna work through that with my therapist. <laughs> But like as a family member, I've got to sort of set that aside. And it feels so counterintuitive to be curious, yeah. right? When someone's using substances and you're their mother or you're their partner, like how, how do, it feels almost like you're condoning the substance use when you say, well, tell me more about what, you know, what that meth does to you when you use yeah. it. That, that doesn't feel very you know, comfortable or natural, but, you know, we do have to get to that point where we're able to, to ask these questions, like getting to that change talk or recognizing mm -hmm. the, the how and the why and the, you know, what, and, and that's not natural. No. Mm -mm. One of the things that I think is so important is how you help family members move through the ambivalence and, and how you help family members understand that better. Um, but I think a lot of times a family member or a loved one just has a difficult time because it, they're, they're just seeing the consequences. They're seeing like, well, duh, like, yes, of course you want to stop this behavior because it's ruining your life. Could you just talk a little bit about that? 
Well, I think when we talk about ambivalence with family members, we have to relate it back to their own personal experiences. And they can't necessarily relate to substance use, but they might be able to relate to other types of ways they've been trying to change in their own life. And so thinking back and asking them to think about a time when they've wanted to make a change and then how you know we go through that process of, yes, I want to dive into that. And no, I don't. If I wanted to lose weight, for example, and, you know, if there wasn't sort of this consequence to that, like if I never had any uh, negative consequences to eating whatever I wanted to, I would eat whatever I wanted to, but I can want two things at the same time, right? So I can want to um, be able to exercise more and have a healthier lifestyle. And at the same time, I can be really comfortable in my sweatpants drinking coffee. And that's a very simple example, but when we relate it back to things in our own life that have been hard for us to make changes. And now when you help a family understand what's going on in the brain of someone who uses substances. And so when we talk about ambivalence, I always really try to help families stay patient through that, that this ambivalence is really normal. It, it, it's normal in our lives every day. And we can want two things at the same time. And not only that, but we're fighting against some pretty deep neural pathways that have been created and biochemistry that's been changed. And so for a family member, so much of that conversation is like, let's look at the positive here. <laughs> he came to you and said he wanted help. And instead of looking at that as like, oh, great, here we go again you know, he's, he's left and I'm sitting here alone in this. And instead of looking at that as like a negative, we can sort of pivot that and make it a positive. Again, just focusing in on that. What are those little teeny tiny morsels of, of change? Recognizing that the stuck stuff coexists. It, it exists in all of us when we're thinking about making a change. Anything that, anything that at one time or another paid off for us in some way or another, whether it was it helped us avoid something or we were drawn to that behavior, then we have reasons why we want to keep doing it and reasons why we don't want to keep doing it. And, and then using the MI skill of validation to create safety and relationship, which is, wow, you know what, I, I, I don't even know how hard this must be for you, but I can tell it is really hard. And then using the next step of an affirmation, right? One of the things I know about you is that you have shown resilience and I know you can do hard things. And then you take that next step, which is asking a curiosity question or an open-ended question. So what, you know, what do you think you would need right now to maybe take that first step? Do you, how can I support you with that? What can we do together? How can I walk through this with you? And sometimes that whole process might take a month or two months you know, to continue to, in every stage of change, which is part of the, you know, motivational interviewing, understanding where they're at, going back and validating that, right? Like, I, I know this is hard, or I hear what you're saying in the change talk, you know, I'm sure this must be frustrating for you. I, can, I can't even imagine how hard it is for you to be separated from your family right now. And, and evoking that empathy and validating the, where they're at without judgment 
to me, that's a game changer for families. What would you say if it comes up with family members, how do you instruct them around, you touched on it earlier, but that sometimes validations can, can feel like you're um, condoning and how do you help family members take that apart? Well, I think we, you know, look for the emotion, right? So someone's angry or they're frustrated. And so you're validating their right to feel that emotion. You're not validating negative behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, I think, looking for that piece of it and specifically drawing that out. Well, you know, I can, I can't even imagine how frustrated this frustrating this would be for you, but I can, I can tell that it is, you know, and so you're really focusing on real and using those reflective statements too, which is part of MI, right? I heard you say you were really angry. I can't even imagine how this would make you feel, but I, I'm here with you and, and you have a right to feel that way. And how can I support you? Right. And on top of that, even saying out loud and in the end, you get to make the decision. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. reminding reminding people that they are in charge of their own lives yeah. which I think people know to and then it's just easy to forget because the whole system is making it seem like it's not your choice and yet it really is and using that word you know I, this is your choice I mean yeah. you can choose what you know and, and sometimes that open-ended question is have you talked to somebody else about this or do you want to go through the pros and cons together? Or, you know, let's talk about that choice. And if you did this, what would that look like? Or if you did this, what would that look like? And so as a family member, it makes you feel like you're, you actually have some power as well, because you're not just sitting back doing nothing. You're engaging, you're leaning in. And so it's really empowering for family members to give them these tools so that they can engage in that in a really different way. Well, and one of the big pushes right now, system-wide I'm seeing nationally, is this idea that we're, we're finally acknowledging that this the short-term acute care that we've focused so much of our resources on is a piece of the puzzle, but it is not the entire puzzle. And people might go off and get that acute care and go to treatment or a detoxification center or something like that. And then they're always returning somewhere, right? So we always end up somewhere, whether that's at home with family or living independently, but that the, our family and loved ones continue to be a, uh, can continue to be <laughs> a system of natural supports. I think you had talked earlier about some statistics around um, when we engage family. What were those? Yeah, well, the the data suggests that uh, it's about four times greater uh, positive outcomes when families are engaged in the recovery process. And when you think about, you know, the holistic recovery and how we want to develop, you know, sort of this wrap team around people when they're in recovery and the family is a strong part of that scaffolding of recovery support. 
And it can also be very damaging if a family really only thinks recovery looks one way. So this is a great tool for families as somebody's going through that early recovery process to engage in what they want to do for their recovery and what that looks like and how they can um, feel supported in that. And, and then just, you know, coming, being part of that team where they know that like their family is for them and with them and that they're willing to support them in their natural recovery, whatever that looks like for them. So I think that that the role of the family, um, I mean, in one study, it was at the end of a year, 81% of people were in continuous recovery when the family was engaged in that process. Mm. And, you know, also when I work as a peer specialist with families, I have to understand the role that I can use MI with them as well in a peer support capacity and helping them to you know, develop agency in their decisions and understand things and feel affirmed um, even when, I mean, I, I'll just tell this really quick little story, but there was, there's a mom who decided to, that her daughter really wanted to do home detox. And in fact, they're, they're doing home detox this week. They couldn't schedule it for a month. So in the meantime, she used harm reduction and made sure that this daughter had a really safe supply of her substance of use in order to get through for that month. Now that sounds like a really controversial, very, um, you know, like startling decision. And yet for her, I use that MI, what does she want? How does she wanna be in this? What does she feel like she can do? How can she support her daughter? And that was the conclusion that we came up with to get her to that point where she is doing the detox at home. And um, again, like you have to really be at, at that place where you are just in a place of acceptance because that feels really counterintuitive, but it's keeping people alive until they can engage in recovery. And like I said earlier, when I think of partnering and effective relationships, I quite literally think of Pam because she's taught countless people how to stay with their loved one through this process. And they don't have to close doors and create walls and barriers and they can love them as is in this moment. It's not contingent on when you someday down the road, they, she teaches family members how to partner in that moment and with skills too. And so I feel like even coming out the other side, those skills don't fall away. It's just another really positive reinforcement that they'll have a better opportunity to maintain their recovery, whatever that looks like to them. Well, thank you, Pam, so much for joining us today. And we look forward to engaging with you in many other new and exciting ways. And I hope everyone comes back to our next episode 12. Thanks, Laura, for being here as well. Thank you. Thanks, Pam. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by the Great Lakes ATTC, MHTTC, and PTTC, which are funded through cooperative agreements with SAMHSA. The opinions expressed in this recording are those of the speakers and do not represent the official position of SAMHSA or DHHS. Thank you again for joining us on the Encouraging Change podcast. 
If you are a new listener, please follow us on social media and don't forget to like and subscribe to the Great Lakes Current YouTube channel to access many more free products and resources just like this. Thank you.